Welcome to another in-depth exploration of biblical missionaries, written by Borge Schantz, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 11. Paul. Background and Call. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, the New International Version. One of the most central figures in the New Testament was Paul, originally Saul of Tarsus. Paul was to the early Christian church what Moses was to the children of Israel. The difference is that while Moses brought God's people out from the Gentiles in order that Israel would be able to do God's will, Paul brought God's word from Israel to the Gentiles in order that the Gentiles could do the same, that is, to do God's will. More is known about Paul than any other first century Christian. He is especially remembered for his significant contributions that have influenced Christian outreach during the past two millennia. His missionary visits and activities to the nations around the Mediterranean Sea set a powerful example for Christian missions in coming generations. Paul is credited with lifting biblical absolutes from their Jewish culture, where civil, ritual, and moral laws were so integrated into the fabric of Jewish life that there was hardly any distinction between the Jewish custom and what they thought was God's everlasting message to the nations. In this exploration, we will take our first look at someone who, other than Jesus himself, is thought by many to be the most important figure in the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus. In the first part of verse 3 of Acts chapter 22, as if introducing himself, Paul declares, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Saul was born in Tarsus, an important town on the trade route between Syria and Western Asia. Tarsus was a multicultural center of industry and learning and home for a short time to Rome's most famous orator and senator, Cicero. Saul's parents were diaspora Jews, which means that they were Jews who were not living in the land of Israel. They were from the tribe of Benjamin. His birth name was Saul, Hebrew Shaul, which means asked for of God. Though after he began his mission to the Gentiles, as noted in Acts chapter 13 and verse 9, he took the name Paul, Latin Paulus, name of a prominent Roman family. Also, since he was a Pharisee, Paul probably had a wife, though we know nothing about her. In fact, we don't know much about his family at all. 
though a sister and a nephew are mentioned in Acts chapter 23 and verse 16. Paul was also a Roman citizen. We have this verified in Acts chapter 22 verses 25 to 28 when he was about to be whipped. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, Is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, What are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me plenty. Paul answered, But I am a citizen by birth. Saul was probably educated in synagogue school in Tarsus until 12 years of age, followed by rabbinic study in Jerusalem with the famous rabbin. This honorary title meant our rabbi. In Saul's case, the famous rabbi of his day was the rabbin Gamaliel, Acts 22 and verse 3. Like most Jewish males, he learned a trade, in Saul's case, tent-making, Acts chapter 18 and verse 3. As already stated, Paul was a Pharisee, Philippians 3 verse 5. The Pharisees, meaning separated ones, were known for insisting that all the laws of God, both those written in the books of Moses, as well as those handed down verbally by generations of scribes, were binding on all Jews. Their strict patriotism and detailed obedience to Jewish laws could make them appear to their fellow Jews as hypocritical and judgmental. Paul, however, did not hide the fact that he and his father were Pharisees in Acts 23 and verse 6. Paul's Pharisaic background was an important element in his successful missionary work for both Jews and Gentiles. It equipped him with detailed knowledge of the Old Testament, the only scriptures available to early Christians. It also acquainted him with the scribal additions to and expansions of the Old Testament laws. He was thus the apostle best qualified to discern between timeless, scripture-based, divine absolutes on the one hand and later Jewish cultural additions, which were not binding and which therefore could be ignored by Gentile followers of Jesus. That issue would become a very important one in the life of the early church. Today, too, the role of culture in the church creates issues for the church to discuss. Which of our Christian beliefs seem to conflict most sharply with the surrounding culture? How do you deal with the conflict without compromising what must never be compromised? The man. Personality traits are an individual's typical responses to surrounding domestic, cultural, or educational circumstances. Character is the combination of traits, qualities, and abilities that make up what sort of person an individual is. Let's explore Paul's personality by listening to six different excerpts from his own writings. The question to keep in mind is, what do these texts reveal about Paul's character and personality. 
Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still drawing his breath hard from threatening and murderous desire against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and requested of him letters to the synagogues at Damascus, authorizing him, so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way of life as determined by faith in Jesus Christ, he might bring them bound with chains to Jerusalem. Paul's Personality Filled with hatred against the leaders of a new sect, he went to a traditionally accepted religious leader for permission to arrest and imprison them. He was determined to put a stop to this new religion. Philippians chapter 3, verses 6 and 8. Notice the transformation. As to my zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, and by the law's standard of righteousness, supposed justice, uprightness, and right standing with God, I was proven to be blameless, and no fault was found with me. But whatever former things I had that might have been gains to me, I have come to consider as one combined loss for Christ's sake. Yes, furthermore, I count everything as loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him of perceiving and recognizing and understanding him more fully and clearly. For his sake, I have lost everything and consider it all to be mere rubbish, refuse, dregs, in order that I may win or gain Christ, the Anointed One. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. Notice Paul's humble attitude. For I am the least worthy of the apostles, who am not fit or deserving to be called an apostle, because I once wronged and pursued and molested the church of God, oppressing it with cruelty and violence. But by the grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not found to be for nothing, fruitless and without effect. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, But I obtained mercy for the reason that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might show forth and display all his perfect long-suffering and patience for an example to encourage those who would thereafter believe on him for the gaining of eternal life. Galatians 1.14 and you have heard how I outstripped many of the men of my own generation among the people of my race in my advancement in study and observance of the laws of Judaism. So extremely enthusiastic and zealous I was for the traditions of my ancestors. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 33. Are they ministering servants of Christ to the Messiah? I'm talking like one beside himself, but I am more, with far more extensive and abundant labors, with far more imprisonments, beaten with countless stripes, and frequent at the point of death. Five times I received from the hands of the Jews forty lashes, all but one. 
Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been aboard a shipwrecked at sea. A whole night and a day I've spent adrift on the deep. Many times on journeys, exposed to perils from rivers, perils from bandits, perils from my own nation, perils from the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the desert places, perils in the sea, perils from those posing as believers, but destitute of Christian knowledge and piety. In toil and hardship, watching often through sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, frequently driven to fasting by want, in cold and exposure, and lack of clothing. And besides those things that are without, there is the daily inescapable pressure of my care and anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel his weakness? Who is made to stumble and fall and have his faith hurt, and I am not on fire? with sorrow or indignation. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my infirmity, of the things by which I am made weak and contemptible in the eyes of my opponents. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ knows, he who is blessed and to be praised forevermore, that I do not lie. In Damascus, the city governor acting under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus on purpose to arrest me, and I was actually let down in a rope basket or hamper through a window, a small door in the wall, and I escaped through his fingers. Paul was clearly a man of great conviction and zeal. Before his born-again experience, he used his zeal to persecute the early church. He supported the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, 58. He took the initiative in imprisoning Christian women as well as men in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3. He made murderous threats against the disciples in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 and organized a raid on Christians in a foreign country in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2, Galatians 1 and verse 13. At the same time, too, we can see how Paul's zeal and fervency were to be used for good as he dedicated his life to the preaching of the gospel, despite incredible hardships and challenges. Only a man totally dedicated to what he believed would have done as he did. And though he lost all things for Christ, he counted them as rubbish, which comes from a Greek word that means something which is useless, like garbage. Paul understood what was important in life and what wasn't. Paul was also a humble man. No doubt, partly from the guilt of his former persecution of Christians, he viewed himself as unworthy of his high calling, and also as someone who preached the righteousness of Christ as our only hope of salvation. He knew just how sinful he was in contrast to a holy God, and such knowledge was more than enough to keep him humble, surrendered, and grateful. One ray of the glory of God, one gleam of the purity of Christ penetrating the soul makes every spot of defilement painfully distinct and lays bare the deformity and defects of the human character. It makes apparent the unhallowed desires, 
the infidelity of the heart, the impurity of the lips. That assessment is quoted from Ellen G. White's Steps to Christ, page 29. None of us is immune to pride. Let's focus on the cross, what it means, which can cure us from sin. Saul to Paul. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 22 tell the story of Paul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul, still drawing his breath hard from threatening and murderous desire against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and requested of him letters to the synagogues at Damascus, authorizing him so that if he found any men or women, belonging to the way of life as determined by faith in Jesus Christ, he might bring them bound with chains to Jerusalem. Now as he traveled on, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. Then he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, harassing and troubling me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is dangerous, and it will turn out badly for you to keep kicking against the goad, to offer vain and perilous resistance. Trembling and astonished, he asked, Lord, what do you desire me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were accompanying him were unable to speak for terror hearing the voice but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, but though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was unable to see for three days, and he neither ate nor drank anything. Now there was in Damascus a disciple named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying there. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many people tell about this man, especially how much evil and what great suffering he has brought on your saints at Jerusalem. Now he's here and has authority from the high priest to put in chains all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the descendants of Israel. For I will make clear to him how much he will be afflicted and must endure and suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias left and went into the house, and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you along the way by which you came here, has sent me to you that you may recover your sight 
and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he recovered his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And after he took some food, he was strengthened. For several days afterward he remained with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately in the synagogues he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the very man who harassed and overthrew and destroyed in Jerusalem those who called upon this name? And he has come here for the express purpose of arresting them and bringing them in chains before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and continued to confound and put to confusion the Jews who lived in Damascus by comparing and examining evidence and proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. How was this experience linked to Paul's missionary calling, described in Acts 26, verses 16 to 18? But arise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, that I might appoint you to serve as my minister and to bear witness both to what you have seen of me and to that which I will appear to you, choosing you out, selecting you for myself, and delivering you from this Jewish people and the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may thus receive forgiveness and release from their sins and a place and portion among those who are consecrated and purified by faith in me. Right from the start, it was clear that the Lord had intended to use Paul to reach both Jews and Gentiles. No other event in Paul's preparation as missionary and theologian compared in importance to his conversion. Indeed, often in his witness, he would talk about that experience. In Acts 26, verse 16, New Living Translation, Paul reports what Jesus said to him. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me, and tell them what I will show you in the future. Paul couldn't preach about or teach what he didn't know. No, instead he would preach and teach out of his own experiences with and knowledge of the Lord, all the time in harmony with the Word of God. For example, this is how he introduced himself to the Christians in Rome. Listen to his words in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. From Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, called to be an apostle, a special messenger set apart to preach the gospel, the good news of and from God, which he promised in advance long ago through his prophets in the sacred scriptures. In Acts 26 and verse 18, Paul reflects on his desired goal of preaching and what would be the outcome of his work. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may thus receive forgiveness and release from their sins and a place and a portion among those who are consecrated and purified by faith in me. From this we can see five results of authentic missionary work. 
Number one, open people's eyes. Make God and Jesus real, present, active, and appealing. Number two, move from darkness to light, ignorance to knowledge, a core gospel theme, as Luke 1 verses 78 and 79 indicate. Because of and through the heart of tender mercy and loving kindness of our God, a light from on high will dawn upon us and visit us to shine upon and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to direct and guide our feet in a straight line into the way of peace. Number three. Turn from the power of Satan to God. Number four, receive forgiveness of sins. The problem of sin has a solution. This is the living, healing, core message of Christians. Number five, receive a place among the sanctified. This means membership in God's church, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or nationality. If someone were to ask you, What about your own experience with Jesus? What can you tell me about him? What would you say? In the mission field. From Jerusalem and roundabout as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Romans 15, 19, the New King James Version. What was the foundational element for any kind of mission work you heard in this text? What about in these verses? 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ, the Messiah crucified preaching which to the Jews is a scandal and an offensive stumbling block that springs a snare or trap, and to the Gentiles it is absurd and utterly unphilosophical nonsense. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2 For I resolved to know nothing, to be acquainted with nothing, to make a display of the knowledge of nothing, and to be conscious of nothing among you except Jesus Christ the Messiah and Him crucified. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But far be it from me to glory in anything or anyone except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Philippians 1, verses 15 to 18. Some, it is true, actually preach Christ, the Messiah, for no better reason than out of envy and rivalry, party spirit, but others are doing so out of a loyal spirit and goodwill. The latter proclaim Christ out of love because they recognize and know that I am providentially put here for the defense of the good news of the gospel. But the former preach Christ out of a party spirit, insincerely out of no pure motive, but thinking to annoy me, 
supposing they are making my bondage more bitter and my chains more galling. But what does it matter, so long as either way, whether in pretense for personal ends or in all honesty for the furtherance of the truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I now rejoice, and yes, I shall rejoice hereafter also. One thing is certain about all of Paul's missionary endeavors, no matter where he went. The preaching of Christ and him crucified was central to his message. By making it so, he was being faithful to the call that Christ had first given him, that he should preach about Jesus. The message for missions today is obvious. Whatever else we preach and teach, and as Seventh-day Adventists, we have been given so much that needs to be shared with the world, we must keep Christ and Him crucified at the front and center of all of our outreach and mission work. Paul, though, didn't preach Jesus just as some sort of objective truth and then go on his merry way. Central to his work was to raise up churches and to start Christian communities, region by region, throughout his part of the world, wherever he could. In the truest sense, his work was church planting. There is another element to Paul's missionary work as well. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him we preach and proclaim, warning and admonishing everyone, and instructing everyone in all wisdom, comprehensive insight into the ways and purposes of God, that we may present every person mature, fully grown, fully initiated, complete and perfect in Christ the Anointed One. What does it sound like Paul is saying? That is, is this evangelism or discipleship? If someone reads many of Paul's epistles, it's clear that they often are not evangelistic, at least in the sense that we use the term, that of reaching out to the unchurched. On the contrary, many of the letters were written to established church communities. In other words, included in Paul's missionary endeavors was the work of pastoral care, edification, and nurturing the churches. So we can see at least three central elements to Paul's missionary activity. One, proclaiming Jesus. Two, church planting. And three, nurturing established churches. Think about the last time you witnessed to someone, in whatever capacity. How central was Jesus to what you said? How can you make sure that you always keep him central? Mission and Multiculturalism Multiculturalism is a recent term, first appearing in print in the 1960s according to the Oxford English Dictionary. For many ancient peoples, there were only two categories of humanity, us and them, our tribe, and not our tribe. For Greeks, all non-Greeks were barbarians. For Jews, all non-Jews were Gentiles. As we have seen already, 
The success of the Gentile mission forced the infant church and its leaders to deal with the Jew-Gentile divide. The question at heart was whether a Gentile could become a Christian without first becoming a Jew. Let's listen to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. As you listen, assess what happened there and how this account illustrates, in its own way, the challenge of multiculturalism in outreach and mission. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. After an interval of 14 years, I again went up to Jerusalem. This time I went with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me also. I went because it was specially and divinely revealed to me that I should go. And I put before them the gospel, declaring to them that which I preach among the Gentiles. However, I presented the matter privately before those of repute, for I wanted to make certain, by thus at first confining my communication to this private conference, that I was not running or had not run in vain, guarding against being discredited either in what I was planning to do or had already done. But all went well, even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled, as some had anticipated, to be circumcised, although he was a Greek. My precaution was because of false brethren who had been secretly smuggled in to the Christian brotherhood. They had slipped in to spy on our liberty and the freedom which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might again bring us into bondage under the law of Moses. To them we did not yield a submission even for a moment that the truth of the gospel might continue to be preserved for you in its purity. Moreover, no new requirements were made by those who were reputed to be something, though what was their individual position and whether they were really of importance or not makes no difference to me. God is not impressed with the positions that men hold and he is not partial and recognizes no external distinctions. Those, I say, who were of repute imposed no new requirements upon me, had nothing to add to my gospel, and from them I received no new suggestions. But on the contrary, when they really saw that I had been entrusted to carry the gospel to the uncircumcised Gentiles just as definitely as Peter had been entrusted to proclaim the gospel to the circumcised Jews, they were agreeable. For he who motivated and fitted Peter and worked effectively through him for the mission to the circumcised, motivated and fitted me and worked through me also for the mission to the Gentiles. And when they knew, perceived, recognized, understood, and acknowledged the grace, God's unmerited favor and spiritual blessing that had been bestowed upon me, James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars of the Jerusalem church, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, with the understanding that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised Jews. They only made one stipulation, that we were to remember the poor, which very thing I was also eager to do. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I protested and opposed him to his face concerning his conduct there, for he was blamable and stood condemned. For up to the time that certain persons came from James, 
he ate his meals with the Gentile converts. But when the men from Jerusalem arrived, he withdrew and held himself aloof from the Gentiles and ate separately for fear of those of the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews along with him also concealed their true convictions and acted insincerely, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy, their example of insincerity and pretense. But as soon as I saw that they were not straightforward and were not living up to the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before everybody present, if you, though born a Jew, can live as you have been living, like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you dare now to urge and practically force the Gentiles to comply with the ritual of Judaism and live like Jews? I went on to say, although we ourselves, you and I, are Jews by birth and not Gentile heathen sinners, Yet we know that a man is justified or reckoned righteous and in right standing with God, not by works of the law, but only through faith and absolute reliance on it and adherence to and trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Therefore, even we ourselves have believed on Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For we cannot be justified by any observance of the ritual of the law given by Moses, because by keeping legal rituals and by works, no human being can ever be justified, declared righteous, and put in right standing with God. But if in our desire and endeavor to be justified in Christ, to be declared righteous and put in right standing with God wholly and solely through Christ, we have shown ourselves sinners also and convicted of sin. Does that make Christ a minister, a party, and contributed to our sin? Banish the thought. Of course not. When Peter, at a later date, visited Antioch, he won the confidence of many by his prudent conduct toward the Gentile converts. For a time, he acted in accordance with the light given from heaven. He so far overcame his natural prejudice as to sit at tables with the Gentile converts. But when certain Jews who were zealous for the ceremonial law came from Jerusalem, Peter injudiciously changed his deportment toward the converts from paganism. This revelation of weakness on the part of those who had been respected and loved as leaders left a most painful impression on the minds of the Gentile believers. The church was threatened with division. The book is entitled, The Acts of the Apostles. You will find that quotation on page 198. The author, Alan G. White. Paul faced the issue with Peter and took a firm stand for what today could be called a multicultural church. His Gentile converts would not have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. Paul's complex background as a devout Pharisee, student of Rabbi Gamaliel, fundamentalist persecuting zealot, and finally convert and apostle of Jesus Christ, eminently qualified him to distinguish timeless, unchanging divine absolutes on one hand, and their temporary cultural and religious vehicles on the other. 
How do you distinguish between what are the essentials of our faith and what are purely cultural, social, or even personal preferences? We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dwayne Boyer, and I'd like to know what you know about the Book of Romans. Did you know the Book of Romans has been at the center of every great revival in Christian history? What caused Martin Luther to say, This is the greatest gospel of all? Is he confused? Doesn't he know about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Here's five questions for you. What's a Christian? And however you would answer that question, Would it match the Apostle Paul's? How about this one? The gospel comes first to the Jew, he says, then to the Gentile. Is God playing favorites here? Think about this. Is it possible to be in right relationship with God, but still feel like sin resides with you? Which is more important for salvation? A. The work of Christ for you, or B, the work of the Holy Spirit in you, and another. Is it possible to be in right relationship with God and simultaneously be worried about the judgment? And one more. What does faith mean exactly in the expression righteousness by faith? I'd like to invite you to join me as we discover answers to these and many other questions, as we explore this incredible New Testament letter, and maybe, just maybe, experience revival in your own life too. Please join me in exploring Romans as Paul presents the ultimate gift. You can order today or anytime at ambassadorgroup.org. Let's continue exploring. For although I am free in every way from anyone's control, I have made myself a bondservant to everyone, so that I may gain the more for Christ. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To men under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those without, outside law, I became as one without law. Not that I am without the law of God and lawless toward him, but that I am especially keeping within and committed to the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, wanting in discernment, I have become weak, wanting in discernment, that I might win the weak and overscrupulous. I have, in short, become all things to all men, that I might by all means, at all costs, and in any and every way, save some by winning them to faith in Jesus Christ. And I do this for the sake of the good news, the gospel, in order that I may become a participator in it and share in its blessings along with you. 
1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23, Amplified Bible. Modern missiology applies the term contextualization to Paul's mission methods in those verses. Contextualization is defined as, quote, attempts to communicate the gospel in word and deed to establish the church in ways that make sense to people within their local cultural context, presenting Christianity in such a way that it meets people's deepest needs and penetrates their worldview, thus allowing them to follow Christ and remain within their own culture, end quote. So wrote Darrell L. Whiteman in his article entitled Contextualization, the Theory, the Gap, the Challenge, published in the International Bulletin of Missionary Research, Volume 21, January 1997, page 2, and also published online. You can Google his article. Ellen G. White, on page 197 of her book, The Acts of the Apostles, wrote, The Jewish Christians, living within sight of the temple, naturally allowed their minds to revert to the peculiar privileges of the Jews as a nation. When they saw the Christian church departing from the ceremonies and traditions of Judaism, and perceived that the peculiar sacredness with which the Jewish customs had been invested would soon be lost sight of in the light of the new faith, many grew indignant with Paul as the one who had, in a large measure, caused this change. Even the disciples were not all prepared to accept willingly the decision of the council. Some were zealous for the ceremonial law, and they regarded Paul with disfavor because they thought that his principles in regard to the obligations of the Jewish law were lax. Here are a few questions to consider. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20 says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To men under the law, I became as one under the law though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. How do Paul's words help you to understand and contextualize how we do mission? Or even how you can do personal ministry and witness? Despite Paul's sinful, even shameful past, God forgave Paul and used him in a mighty way. How can you learn to forgive yourself for what you might have done, and claiming the righteousness of Christ as your own, seek to be used mightily of Him as well. AmbassadorGroup.org Thanks for listening. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.